Remain standing for our Old Testament lesson from 2 Chronicles 20. I'll, I'll just read the first 25 verses. Listen carefully because these are God's words. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazazon, Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might? so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine... We will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now, all Judah with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation 
of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and all you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of his holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to meditate on this passage of Scripture and to glean from it the truths about our salvation in you, in Jesus Christ, and to believe them, to believe in you, Lord, and to believe what your prophets have said. We ask for your help in doing this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Three enemy allies have joined forces against us. We see three enemies uh, in this passage, but we have three enemies that have allied against us. According to Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3, three enemies wage war against your spiritual well-being. The world, the flesh, and the demons. But if you belong to Jesus, all your enemies have been definitively subdued. If God has baptized you and put His Spirit in you, into your heart, then greater is he that is in you than he that is in 
the world. Jesus and his spirit inside of you are greater than the flesh inside of you, greater than the world around you, greater than the forces of evil in the heavenly places. When Israel fought against the Canaanites in the promised land, God told them over and over throughout the book of Joshua in particular that the war had already been won. God promised to fight for Israel and to destroy the inhabitants of the land. All all Israel really had to do was to trust and obey Yahweh. Yes, God called them to fight too. They had a role But their primary role was to trust Yahweh to fight for them. And God says that to them over and over. I fight for you. The same promise applies to you. Except except to a much, much greater degree. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for you, he conquered all your enemies. And the Lord Jesus promises to continue to fight for you, to fight for us as you and I continue to trust and obey him. That's our primary duty. Your way of, your old way of life, your Adamic way of life, your selfishness, your greed, your deception of others, your lusts, your anger, your worrying spirit, your lack of interest in others, your laziness, your lack of self-control has been conquered by Jesus. All these enemies have been subdued. You're a Christian soldier now. And what every Christian soldier must know is that the victory... In the war, and thus in every battle, is already yours. Christ has already vanquished your enemies. And yet God still enlists you to fight. He doesn't allow you to to go home and sit on the couch while he does your fighting for you. As an enlisted soldier, you must engage the enemy alongside and behind your captain. You follow your captain, into battle. So when you see what your Lord has done on your behalf, it stirs you to fight, to engage, to go up against the world, against your own flesh, the enemy within, and against the principalities and the powers. And how are you to fight? What's it look like? What are your weapons of warfare as Paul calls them. Well, Paul says in Galatians 6 that as individual soldiers, we must put on the spiritual armor of God before we can fight successfully in our spiritual battles. But what about the corporate dimension? Is there a communal aspect to our war against sin? Well, most certainly there is. Our war... Your war, the church's war, the war of the people of God must be fought corporately as well as individually, personally. Right now, at this very moment, in this very hour, you and I are engaging in corporate warfare. Every Lord's Day, 
that we gather together. We gather to engage in battle against the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. Whenever we show up and participate in Lord's Day worship that is saturated with Scripture and spiritual songs, worship that includes the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, worship that includes loud and vigorous shouts of praise, worship that includes confessing our sins and our faith to God. Worship that includes the breaking of bread at the king's table. Whenever we assemble together with faith in our hearts and praise on our lips. Whenever this happens, with one heart and one voice we gather together to do these things. We are fighting on the front lines of the church's war against the gates of hell. So whenever you worship with the saints of God, you're gathering in the trenches of the battlefield. It's not the only place where the trenches are, but it's one place. Our Old Testament reading from 2 Chronicles 20 highlights both the individual and the corporate dimensions of warfare. Now, of course, in this setting, in this place in redemptive history. It took a spiritual but also sort of a physical uh, dimension too, if we looked at it that way. There's a physical aspect to this. But what I want to see, we're going to highlight the spiritual side of this and see the physical warfare as pointing forward to our spiritual warfare in Christ. But what what I want you to see is that there's an individual as well as a corporate side to this event. In 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, is being attacked by foreign armies. And when we read the Old Testament, when we read about Israel's physical enemies, one of the things that we need to do is read them typologically or pointing forward to the ultimate enemies that we have, that the people of God has have, uh, which is the principalities and the powers, sin, death, our own flesh, the world. So he's being attacked by these foreign enemies. And in verses 1 and 2, we see that some of these surrounding nations had combined forces. So they're going to they're put their resources together against Jehoshaphat, mainly the Moabites and the Ammonites, but also the people from Mount Seir. And what does King Jehoshaphat do when he hears about this plan, this enemy attack? Verse 3 says that he sought the Lord personally, individually. He, he, and then he proclaimed a fast throughout Judah, a corporate fast. And after that, Jehoshaphat calls for a big worship service. Verse 4 says, Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, you might, I wonder what... Jehoshaphat's generals, advisors, his cabinet, what they were thinking here. We, we might even imagine one of them asking, you know, sir, is this the best time to have church? Don't you think we should be preparing for battle against these invading armies? But Jehoshaphat lived by faith rather than by sight in this moment. 
And he knew that trusting in the Lord was the best strategy. Going to the Lord first was the best strategy. Verse 5 says that Jehoshaphat stood in the house of the Lord with the people of Judah and Jerusalem, gathered all around him, and he cried out to the Lord in verse 6. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand, there is, is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. That's Jehoshaphat's knee-jerk reaction to this crisis. In essence, he says here, Lord, I, I agree with the saints of old, my fathers in the faith, who believed that our first line of defense against disaster, against our enemies, against your judgment even. Our first line of defense against all of these things is to stand before you in your house and cry out to you for help in prayer. Is that your knee-jerk reaction to crisis, to disaster, to financial disaster? In verses 10 and 11, Jehoshaphat reminds God that their enemies, the people of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, are trying to throw them out of the promised land. In verse 12, Jehoshaphat confesses that he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't really see how this is going to pan out well. But, he says, no matter what, I'm going to keep my eyes, we will keep our eyes on you, God. Verse 12, look at it with me. O our God, Will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We're clueless. We don't know the next step, what the best one would be even. We know we can't defeat these enemies. It just doesn't add up. The numbers aren't there. We don't know how you're going to bring us through this. But no matter what, we're going to keep our eyes on you, God. This is, this is the prayer of a man living by faith and not by sight, which is kind of ironic because he, he said, I'm going to keep my eyes on you. But I'm saying that he's not living by sight. He's living by faith. Jehoshaphat did not rely, Jehoshaphat did not rely on himself and on his own strength, his own abilities, his own ability to strategize, his own sufficiency. He rested in God. He depended on the Lord. And so think about that phrase, our eyes are upon you. Or as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews puts it, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. The Lord is invisible. We can't see Jesus how are we supposed to keep our eyes on one who is invisible to us? Jehoshaphat and the author of Hebrews weren't talking about seeing with our eyeballs, these in our head. 
the Lord Jesus can only be seen with the eyes of faith. He can only be believed with a heart whose eyes have been opened. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells the Ephesians that he prays for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. The Lord enlightened the eyes, He opened the heart of Jehoshaphat so that he could say, we do not know what to do. We don't know how to think this one through. It's beyond us, but we're going to keep our eyes on you. And what does it mean to keep our eyes on the Lord? It means doing what Jehoshaphat does. He prays. He cries out to the Lord. He casts himself on his mercy. He engages in personal warfare. Keeping your eyes on Jesus is not just an internal disposition. It's not just a state of mind. It's an activity. It involves actively seeking God in prayer. Seeking Him with the eyes of your heart. As Judah's king did. Keeping your eyes on Jesus is the opposite of keeping your eyes on yourself and your hardships and your limitations. Looking to the Lord is the opposite of handling the situation in your own strength, with your own wisdom, which is what you'll do if your situation is the only thing you can really see. Looking to God for insight and power cannot happen while you're leaning on your own understanding and fighting your battles according to your own flesh, to your own strength. In your battles against the enemy, your prayer must be Jehoshaphat's prayer. At the beginning of his prayer, in verse 6, he confesses that God is king of heaven and ruler of all kingdoms, and that God alone has all power and might. And so no one and nothing can withstand him. And at the end of the prayer, in verse 12, he confesses, O our God, we have no power, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Learn to pray like Jehoshaphat. Learn to pray this very prayer even. Memorize this prayer. Learn to pray with Jehoshaphat's faith and conviction. Learn to acknowledge God's infinite power and your powerlessness. As I reflect on this verse, on verse 12, I think about all the times as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as your pastor even, when I should have prayed like Jehoshaphat first. But I didn't. I didn't say my knee-jerk reaction wasn't, oh God, I have no power, nor do I know what to do, but my eyes are on you. What if I had? What if I had even half of those times I'm thinking of? What if I had leaned on God's power, on God's wisdom, instead of my own? 
Can you think of any times like that in your life when you should have prayed this prayer instead of charging full steam ahead in your own strength? Can you think of any times when instead of finding might and power in God, you settled, you settled for your own meager resources? How many situations in your life might have turned out differently if you had prayed with Jehoshaphat, Oh God, I have no power, nor do I know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat kept his eyes, the eyes of his heart, on the Lord, even though the eyes in his head were telling him that insurmountable, an insurmountable horde of enemy soldiers were coming to destroy him. So he calls for prayer and fasting. He calls for corporate worship, a corporate worship service of sorts. Verse 13, Now all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before the Lord. Biblical worship includes our little ones, our children, and our wives. Then verse 14 says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the Levites and moved him to speak to this gathered assembly. Verses 15 to 18 record what this Levite says. Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. And now look at verse 17. This is important. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still and see. Watch. Look at the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them. For the Lord is with you. All that, needed to, all that Judah needed to do for this one was to show up. They couldn't stay home. They couldn't sit on the couch. They had to show up. But once they showed up, they just needed to watch God do his work. There are some parts of the battle that God does not want us to fight in really at all. Sometimes he just wants us to trust, to rest and to watch him do what he's going to do. Jehoshaphat cried out, Lord, we are powerless, help us. And he, the Lord responded, the battle's mine. I got this one. And Jehoshaphat's response to this promise, to this guarantee, was to fall down before the Lord in worship. Verse 18. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Jehoshaphat was, in, he was, he was engaging in battle. It was just a different kind of warfare. In verse 19, something interesting happens. The choir, the choir that King David had established, that he had formed up back in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, Breaks out in song. This choir was made up of Levites. And verse 19 says, Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up 
to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. Remember that phrase, loud and high. Verse 20. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. If there's a better summary of our calling, our duty as Christians, as soldiers of Christ, soldiers of the King, then Jehoshaphat's exhortation at the end of verse 20, I don't know what it is. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, his word, and you shall prosper. That simplifies it pretty well for us. Verse 21. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of his holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Can you imagine being a part of this praise chorus? Out in front. Now, in most armies, the choir doesn't get put on the front lines, right? But in Israel, in this battle, they were right out front. Jehoshaphat puts his singers, his worship leaders, out in the front of the whole army, and they're leading the way. The threats, the physical threat is there. But this is how they charge ahead. He doesn't put his swordsmen up there. doesn't put his charioteers on the front lines. No, he intends to conquer with a choir. Verse 22 is the climax of the story. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set an ambush against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were defeated. Verses 23 to 25 go on to say that Judah's enemies turned against one another until all of them were dead. And their their self-defeat, their self-destruction was so great and so comprehensive that it took Israel three days to gather up all the spoil. This story took place about 3,000 years ago. But the close connection between worship and And warfare still exists today all the same. When the choir that that was out in front of this army began to worship God, the Lord was roused to action. It's interesting that God says on the one hand, just show up and watch. On the one hand he says that, but then he actually responds when he, does, he, he goes into action at a certain point, and it's not coincidental that it's when they start seeing. The text makes the connection for us between those two events. There's nothing that gets the Lord going more than when his people worship him, fall on their faces, cry out to him in prayer. When they gather for corporate worship, for loud worship, for lively worship, for spirit-filled worship, enthusiastic worship, heartfelt worship, loud worship. 
I emphasize the word loud because the book of Chronicles uses this word at least a few times to describe the kind of worship or response that honors God and that God responds to. God wants loud worship. He wants beautiful worship as well. But there's an emphasis on intensity. Not all of us are capable of having exceptionally beautiful voices. But all of us are capable of singing loud with vigor and volume. As I've said before, if God didn't give you a good voice then remind him of it every Lord's Day. First Chronicles 15 says that Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpet. On harps and lyres. Second, Corinthians, uh, Second Chronicles 15 says that the people swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And then in our passage today, of course, 2 Chronicles twenty nineteen, it says that the Levites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with loud and high voices. This praise choir that went before the army in 2 Chronicles 20 was singing loud and vigorously. They weren't mumbling the words to the songs. They weren't singing just quite enough so that the person next to them couldn't hear. And remember, these were men singing. Singing loud. Leading the way. Men should be leading the way in our singing. There is power in worship. The worship of the people of God. God responds to the praises of His people. Psalm 22, verse 3. You are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. One modern author on worship put it well. Quote, Things happen when we worship the Lord. Worship becomes a tool of warfare in the believer's arsenal to combat the forces of darkness. The praises of the living God dismantle and disengage the threats and traps of the enemy of our souls. In order for us to advance the kingdom of our God, we must sustain a spirit of worship to Him. Our worship creates a base where He begins to work because He lives within the praises of His people. God's presence is manifested in praise and worship and His presence will always equal victory. Whenever and wherever God's people praise Him, their praise establishes a place for Him to rule and reign from. And it follows that when God is ruling and reigning, many wonderful things are going to take place. End quote. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy Strongholds. Our main weapons, private worship, corporate worship, when used correctly, properly, when done well, have divine power because God is there in the midst of us to destroy the strongholds of sin in our hearts, 
in our relationships, in our families, in our church. So what's your battle plan? Do you have one? How are you attacking the unrighteousness that lingers in you, inside of you? The unrighteousness that pervades the world around you. Do you have a winning strategy? There, there's at least one element that, that a good battle plan must include. And this is just one of them. But every successful strategy will prioritize being with God's people on the Lord's day. On the very first day of every week. Victorious Christians begin each week worshiping the Lord with the people of the Lord. Victorious Christian families begin each week worshiping the Lord with the people of the Lord. Your warfare must begin every week with corporate worship. It can't end there, but it must begin there. And so be faithful. Be faithful in joining Jesus and his people on the Lord's day. Of course, it's not that God needs our worship. He could accomplish everything that he wants without us, if that's how he had wanted to set it up, if that's how he desired to do it. Of course, his power is so great. His sovereignty could establish all of his ways without us, if you wanted. Without our worship, without our gathering together. But if you want to be a part of God's mission, if you want to fight in God's army, if you want to participate in the attack on the forces of evil, if you want to be a part of the charge against hell's gate, then you must commit yourself to worship. You must start every week with Trinitarian worship in the house of the Lord. And you must live every week after that event. You must live every week presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God. That's your reasonable service or worship throughout the week. Corporate worship on Sunday must give way to private worship during the rest of the week. The house of the Lord and your personal prayers are where the battles take place. That's where you engage in war. That's why the enemy tries to pull us away from our prayer closet. He tries to pull us away from the assembly. The most important battles do not take place on blogs or in books. The war is not fought primarily through protests or politics. The most important skirmishes between good and evil... The most important advances on the gates of hell take place in the courts of the Lord and in prayer closets. The prayers and praises of Jehoshaphat 
and the Levites moved God to act in battle against his enemies and theirs, ours. Our prayers and praises, your prayers and praises, move God to act against his enemies and yours and mine. And so let's be diligent warriors. Let's fight, but let's also watch God fight as we worship him. Let's pray and ask for God to empower us to do this. Father, we thank you for enlisting us in your army to fight behind our captain, Jesus Christ, who has won the victory for us through his death and resurrection on the cross at Calvary, in the tomb and out of the tomb who has ascended into heaven at your right hand and who intercedes for us. We confess that all the power that we need to do this comes from you and not from within us. And so we ask you to empower us, to strengthen us for battle. Strengthen our faith so that we can believe in you and believe in your word, your prophets. And cast ourselves wholly on you. Thank you for fighting our battles for us. And we pray that you'd continue to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.